The sermon this morning is going to be a little different than normal. Adam's been going through the book of Revelation, and uh, as a general principle, as we preach here, we do expository preaching. We work through a book of the Bible and just a progression and see God's unfolding word and God's unfolding plan. But as a week off from Revelation, this morning will be somewhat expository, but looking a bit more at a specific theme of Scripture. This week, I'm sure most of you are aware, unless you just barricaded yourselves in your house, but the most powerful and influential country in the world elected Barack Obama to serve as a a second term as our president. The president, he serves as the head of state, serves as the head of government, the leader of the legislative branch of probably the most influential country in the world, commander-in-chief of what is probably the most powerful military in the world. And this week, the Americans elected him to serve a second term. If you've been seeing the campaigns that were run, it's a very divided opinion and divided country coming to the election. It was a a close race all the way through. Even coming down the last day, a lot of pundits unsure which direction it was going to it was going to come, it was going to fall. And if you saw the campaigning, you see that there's a bigger division right now, it seems, than there has ever been. Over $2 billion was spent alone, just on the presidential campaigns alone, which blew away the old record numbers. And according to uh, NBC News, over $6 billion total on all the congressional and House and presidential elections. Uh, over $6 billion running campaigning. And if you saw those commercials, I'm sure you were sick of them like I was with what seems to be just a bunch of crazy promises of the hope and prosperity and wealth and peace that each, everybody promises, you just elect me, that's what's going to happen. And on the other side, just this dismal picture of gloom and despair and the end of the world if you elect the other guy or the other girl, it's, you know, it's going to be the end of the world. And you can begin to come like me and just become a little bit cynical towards the whole thing, not really believe much about it. But in the elections, just the campaigning as attitudes and spirits got more and more invested in it, and there's more and more emotion and, and people's energy tied up into it, the campaigning just became, seemed more and more crazy in the promises that they were making. Listen to just a couple of the promises made throughout this campaign. Obama, in an election speech, describing the moment of his election in 2008, I think he repeated this uh, from his uh, speech right after he won in 2008. He says, quote, this was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal. Oprah, campaigning for Obama, says this, quote, We're here to evolve to a higher plane. He is an evolved leader. He has an ear for eloquence and a tongue dipped in the unvarnished truth. He alone can lead us from darkness to light. The world needs him. Romney, Governor Romney, as he was closing his debate, the final debate with Obama, went into the spiel of how out of him and the other candidates present, he was really the only hope for America. And as he makes this call of he's the only hope for America, then he ends with this statement, quote, and this nation is the only hope of the earth. 
I'm not here to politicize, to tell you how to think about one candidate or another. I'm not here to sensationalize the election. But what I want to do is call us to a God-centered thinking and a God-centered reality about who really is the hope of America. Who really rules and guides and governs what goes on. It's crazy you watch in the, after the election and you go to one scene and there's just like this mad party and there's partying in the streets and uh, it's, the world is now a better place. There's now hope and, and all light is now coming. Darkness is over and just this crazy sort of enthusiasm. And then you look at another scene and it's this gloom and despair. As the, the world's now going to end because... Romney didn't get elected and Obama did. And if it was vice versa, it would have been the same thing. And I think too often as Christians, we get caught up into the whole notion that our hopes and our joys and our dreams and my plans are going to rest solely upon America and how America is doing, are going to rest solely upon the president and how the president is leading and guiding. And I want to call us back to reality here. Call us back to a God-centered view of things. I'll make this caveat once because I I don't want to be taken this way. The election, the policies, the the people who are running for election, it is an important thing. So I'm not acting like it's not important. I'm not telling you that there shouldn't be good Christian discussion, good thought, good Christian involvement in it. All right, so we'll just assume that I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's a good thing. But I am calling us to take a step back and realize that these are secondary measures to what goes on in your life. The primary means for your happiness, for your hope, for your joy rests firmly and solidly on the sovereignty of God. It stands there. It's unmovable. So I'm sorry, Obama, but you're not going to have anything to do with the oceans rising and the planet healing. Oprah, Obama is not the light that's going to shine in the darkness. Romney, you're not the hope of America, and America isn't the hope of the earth. It is sovereign God, declared over and over and over again in Scripture. I think we know it and we confess it, but we get caught up in in this propaganda and in, in all of this, oh, if this happens, if this person gets elected, then my 401k and my plans and my dreams are ruined or destroyed. All my hope is in Obama. All my hope is in Romney. All my hope is in America. All my, whatever it is. And we're called back to a God-centered view of things. We're going to look at the sovereignty of God. And I, I would just ask you this. Just let the scripture speak for itself. When you speak with, about the sovereignty of God, you always have to speak carefully because there's complementary things of, of human decision and choices and responsibility. There's complementary things of natural causes and, and of Satan and his work at blinding people's eyes. There's a lot going on. But when we talk about the sovereignty of God, too often we run straight to all of those difficult questions instead of letting the Scripture speak for itself first on the sovereignty of God. Let it inform you what God says about himself. 
that he is the primary cause, that he is the great mover, as we heard uh, J.D. read earlier. That yes, choices are real, responsibility is real, there are secondary causes that we're all involved with, but God stands as the absolute free, sovereign one. Not Obama, not Romney, not America. And so we're going to look at that. We'll start in Isaiah and then we will kind of jump through and take uh, different looks. We'll start in Isaiah 46 where Todd read from just a few minutes ago. And my goal is there's just three points. We'll get through it fairly quickly. But I'm going to start generally and then get more narrow with each point. The context of Isaiah. Isaiah is coming to a people who are uh, God's chosen people, God's people, yet struggling. They're always being influenced by other nations, worshiping the gods of other nations, being pulled into uh, not trusting in Jehovah God. And it's either because they're under a threat or they're in captivity or something. And God makes a case through his prophet Isaiah all the way from the beginning of Isaiah where he talks about the holiness of God. And then moves on to compare the idols that they're worshiping with Jehovah God. And it kind of culminates here in Isaiah 46. And you heard uh, Todd read it a few minutes ago. And he asked the question, seriously? You chopped down a tree, you carved an image, you threw it on your shoulder, carried it over and set it up, and now all your hope is in that? God's calling them back to reality. And he's doing it because he's calling them back from despondency, from hopelessness, from despair, from woe is me mentality. Just like I think Americans, Christian Americans, need to be called back from despondency and despair and a woe is me mentality. And he calls them back. And as he does, he does it by painting a picture of who he is. 46, chapter 46 and verse 9. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God. In Scripture, when God begins a a statement with, I am God, he's about ready to describe what it means for God to be God. I am God. And then he goes on to say something about himself. And the supposition is that the people, the audience who is hearing, that they are not rightly understanding God. It's not that they're ignoring God. It's not that they're not talking about God. They don't understand who God is. And I want to pause because I think that is such a problem for the church today, for Christians today, is there's a lot of talk about God. There's a lot of talk about being like Jesus and about uh, doing ministry in your community and caring for your community and talk about the Bible. But are we really informed on who God is? Is it just a lot of talk and we basically then form an opinion and through, you know, a set of circumstances, we kind of shape and fashion a God, as it says in Psalms. We've shaped and fashioned gods after our own likeness. Or do we step back and we let Scripture say, I am God. In the midst of confusion and despondency and despair and unfaithfulness, oftentimes you'll see in the Old Testament, God steps forward and he begins with saying, I am God. That's a call for us to then read on and see how is God defining himself to us and what does that mean for us? So I am God. Point number one, God is sovereign. 
verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. First thing we learn about God and his sovereignty is he is absolutely unique. And he's not just unique. There's no one equal. There's no one in the same uh, conversation with God. There's no one you can compare with God. He's in a class all by himself. As if to say, okay, I've been comparing myself to idols and what I can do, but let's be realistic. I am God. There's no one else in this conversation. For us, as we think specifically about America and the presidency and the election, there is God and there is no one else. There is none like him. Let's step back. Reality check. There's one sovereign God. There's no one else in that conversation. He goes on. I am God, there is none like me. In verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Basically saying that God has knowledge, eternal knowledge of everything. He knows everything. He knows the outcome of everything. From the beginning of time, he's known what is going to happen. He knows the means of how it's going to happen. And he knows the end. It's not just a plan and proposal he puts forward and then you know, he reacts along the way to make sure, uh-oh, I, I better adjust this, I better adjust that. No, he, he knows. He knows everything. The problem is some people stop right there. And that that becomes a real divide in how we view God and how we view God interacting with us and with his church. Is if, yes, he's unique, and yes, he knows everything, but he quickly takes the next step here. Again in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all of my purposes So he is unique, he knows everything, and he knows everything because he's decreed everything. Literally, my counsel shall stand means my decree will not change. It talks about the decrees of God in eternity past. We see it through Ephesians. We see it through the Old Testament. We see it everywhere. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit setting forth together a divine counsel. And he's saying, I have decreed it. I know what's going to happen. Here's how I know. I've decreed that it will happen. Then he takes it a step farther. He hasn't just decreed it, and then he steps back and lets things play out, and he just knows how it's going to end. He says, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So he has decreed it. His decree works according to his purpose. In Scripture, much of the purpose of God is revealed to us, primarily his glory, that his name would be exalted above all things. His purpose, that Jesus Christ would come and save a people for himself. His purpose, that he would overcome darkness in our hearts, draw us to himself, and then keep us for all eternity. He decreed it. He knows how it's going to happen. It's according to his purposes. And then the promise is, I will accomplish it. I take action in bringing it to pass. 
Which means that the reason God knows the future is because he plans the future. The reason he knows the outcome is because he accomplishes the outcome. The future is simply this. It's the counsel of God established. The purpose of God being accomplished by God. That's why then we come to verse 11. It says, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. In this last phrase, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. Another re- the reason my words come true, the reason my predictions come true, is because I purposed it. It's my decree. The reason it comes true, and I know it will come true, is because I'm doing it. I'm accomplishing it. God is sovereign in what seems to be the most random things. Proverbs 16, verse 33. Just jot these down. You don't have to turn to each of them. But he is sovereign over what appears to be random. It talks about the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That has the idea of modern vernacular of uh, the dice is rolled up at the casino there on the North Shore. Or, or you go to get-go and the lottery ticket is selected. But it's God's sovereignty that prevails even in that. In those terms... They probably weren't thinking of gambling, but decisions were made often in that setting. Solomon talks about that in that biblical time, a biblical set, setting of drawing the, the lots. Decisions would be made that way, assuming the sovereignty of God in directing them through that. What seemed to be the most random acts, it says God is sovereign over that. What seemed to be of no consequence, small events God is sovereign over. Matthew 10, 29 and 30. Are there not two sparrows sold for a penny, a mere penny? Yet Jesus says not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. But even the hairs of your heads are all numbered. For some of us that's a big number, for some of us not so much. (laughs) But God knows it. What seems like the smallest detail, what seems like the most invaluable thing, two birds sold for a penny, and God is sovereign over that. God knows it. His purpose prevails in the smallest details. You look at the book of Jonah, and you see God's sovereign hand all over those events that some people can look at and just see as randomly happening. Jonah ends up on that ship. God sends the storm. And you read through, and God is active. He's the one doing the action all through Jonah. He sends the storm. He then sends a fish. Literally, he causes the fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah then goes and preaches, and then God causes a gourd to grow, and then God sends a worm to eat the gourd. And you see God's sovereign hand and God's sovereign activity all through that. And things much above a worm. Isaiah 40, verse 26 Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. Because he is strong and power, not one is missing, referring to the stars of heaven. God is sovereign over nature, Psalm 147, 15. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and he melts them. 
He makes his wind to blow. Job 37, 11 through 13, he loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction, for his land, or for love. He causes it to happen. Psalm 135 Verses 5 through 7, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Whatever He pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and the deep, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. All that He pleases, He does. I could go on and on and on with scriptures that speak boldly about the sovereignty of God. And when scripture does so, it does so with majesty. It does so with the sweet, majestic, bold language. It does so unapologetically. I am God and there's no one else in this conversation. Sovereignty of God. For us, point two gets a little more narrow. That is that God is sovereign over America. Okay, we can step back and think as creator God, yes, he's sovereign, but but let's step it back just a moment. Or, or, Or let's bring it in more narrow, I should say. Let it hit closer to home that God is sovereign over America. We see it in Isaiah, but let's turn to Acts 17. We'll use this as our passage that we launch out of for this point. Yeah, I know it's a lot more turning, a lot more quoting than usual. But I want to take a, a look at the Scripture and let it overwhelm us with the truth of God's sovereignty and let us shake us back into reality. Here in Acts 17, Paul is, we're going to look at the end of it, verses 22 and following, we'll look in that section. And Paul is debating with the men of Athens. It's the scholars and philosophers, and he's, he makes his way to the Areopagus, and here he is going to begin his dialogue, his debate with these men, as he speaks about the gods they worship and his God. Let's read verses 24 to 26. The center of his argument he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. See what it's saying there in verse 26 about God's sovereignty over nations? That God calls nations into existence. Through one man, he created all nations. He calls them into existence. But not only that, he is sovereign over the geographical boundaries of that nation. He decides how far they will spread. He decides how far their influence will spread. He'll decide how much land they take over. He decides the geographical boundaries of a nation. It is allotted from the Lord. He also decides when that nation is formed and when that nation falls. (laughs) It says that the period of that nation, the time frame of that nation is governed by the Lord. 
when they rise, how they rise. America is not the hope of the planet. America is not the hope of the earth. Romney, Obama is not the hope of America and the leader of the free world. It is God that makes a difference in our hearts and in our lives. He calls nations into existence. He sets their boundaries. Listen to Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Frustrates the plans of all people. Brings their counsel to nothing. Isaiah 40, verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are in it and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastline like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. That is God's sovereignty, clear, dramatically stated over all the nations. He's in a class by himself. They are emptiness. They are less than nothing. I'm not sure what less than nothing is. And don't get confused. God talks about the value that he puts on people. The love that he has towards individual. He's not talking about God's care and God's fatherly love and God's concern. What he is talking about is God's sovereign control. It is Job that says that he makes nations great and he destroys nations as well. If you're still in Acts 17, let's look at a couple implications before we move on to our last point. Acts 17 verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. It has the idea that that God is not confined to a little space that we allow him to be in. When you think about America and the, the social and moral status that we find ourselves in right now as America... We can begin to think, depending on who is elected and depending on what policy goes into place, that God's going to be moved further and further away and and confined to one little sentence somewhere over here and make sure that he never crosses paths with anybody and we push him clear away. Again, I'm not saying that policies and things like that are important to be informed about and vote about. But the people that God created, the nations that he rises up, the nations that are nothing compared to him, they can't write God away in one little sentence. They can't make God force him out of America. It's not that we used to be a Christian culture that allowed God to rule in America and then we slowly drifted away and now as a post-Christian culture or as an atheistic culture, we now don't let God in America and we give him the stiff arm away. Saying, God's not even confined to your temples or your churches. Nothing confines God. 
Yes, government policies are real. Yes, that happens. Is it overruling God's purpose and God's counsel and God accomplishing his purpose? No. They can't box God up so that he can't accomplish his purpose. It can't happen. So we're called to think more clearly to, yes, be bold Christians and, yes, vote and act informed and accordingly with a Christian worldview, but not get caught up that somehow, depending who's president, God might be forced out of America. He might be confined to one little sentence in some part of some legislation. God can overcome it. His purpose will prevail. He will accomplish it. He will do it. Same thing in verse 25. It says, He's not served by humans' hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Don't think that God sits and asks permission for the president before he acts. That God's dependent upon the general population and their vote. He doesn't sit back. He doesn't need anything. This can be a little bit misleading. Some people think, okay, does this overrule all of the commands for us to worship and to work hard and to minister and to serve and to pray and to evangelize? No. It's just saying God isn't dependent upon you for his purposes to prevail. But here's the glory of it. He chooses to work in and through you. That's what energizes you to do it. That's why you go to God in prayer. Have you ever thought through that argument, flipping it up on its head? When people ask, why pray if God is sovereign? If he's already decreed it, and he's going to accomplish it, and he is going to do it, and he knows all things, like, why does prayer do anything? And I would say, would you pray to a God who didn't decree and couldn't accomplish? Would you pray to a God who was not able to accomplish his purposes? A God who was not able to overcome darkness. A God who was not able to overcome America or overcome the president. If you truly believe that he's not sovereign, he's not accomplishing all his purposes, then your prayer is nothing but just like a conversation where you're sharing hardships. No, you're praying to a divine sovereign who is able, who is free, who has every right and ability to intervene, to answer your prayer. In fact, he commands in Scripture that that's how he works, is through the prayers of his saints, because he's able. God is sovereign. He's not put in a box somewhere. He's not waiting for man's permission. It's exactly what Acts 17 is saying. Finally, our last point. We've sort of beat it already, but God is sovereign over the president. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over America, and God is sovereign over the president. Turn to Romans chapter 13. We'll use that as our launching pad for this point. I'm just going to read verse 1 right now. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And listen to what this says. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. There's no authority that exists outside of God's permission. There's no authority in ruling unless it is borrowed, by God, borrowed from God, is given permission by God, is under the sovereign rule and control of God. There's not a president who can be a hope that replaces God. There's not a president who can write policy that's going to frustrate and stump God's plans and God's purposes. It is placed there and it exists precisely because of God. If you want to see this clearly, go to the book of Daniel. The community group up north, we spent some time going through the book of Daniel. In that first section, you see God's sovereignty so clearly. But you look in Daniel 1 through Daniel 4, and you see powerful, powerful kings humbled like that before the hand of a sovereign God. Daniel talks, first of all, that God raised Nebuchadnezzar up for this very moment, for what's about to take place. Then you work through. I'm just going to read one little section from Daniel chapter 2. Verses 21 and 22, Daniel looks to give an answer to a vision. It says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. It's getting clear. He sets up kings and he removes kings. You get to Daniel chapter 4 and you have Nebuchadnezzar out in the field like a, a beast. And then he makes the same confession to God. He is the only powerful king. We're all completely at his mercy. John 19.11. John 19, Passion of Christ. He stands before Pilate. Pilate about ready to hand over Jesus to commit the most hideous sin known to man, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus is questioned, he looks at Pilate, and he doesn't say much, but he says this in chapter 19, verse 11 of John. Jesus answered him. He says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Even in that moment, everything that went forth was under the permission and authority of a sovereign God. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. King's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I heard a, an illustration about this, and I'll just repeat it for you. Of a, it has the idea of farming in a really dry area, and, and the water comes forward, and as they try to move that water and direct it to the farmland where they need it specifically. And so farmers just dig these really rude type of canals. This happens in the, the a Middle Eastern, a drier area. And these rude type of canals are kind of controlled by, again, just a real crude type of dam system, which is just some boards that you can throw up and down. 
And so as the water comes through and it hits this canal and then there's a split and one of the, the boards is pulled so it goes that direction. Another is dropped so it goes that direction. And the water channels its way slowly. And if you took a bird's eye view, then you could see the farmer's plan and moving it directly to the farm or to the, to the spot where he wants it to go. As he channels that water directly and precisely where, where he wants it. And that's what... Solomon here in the Proverbs is, is telling us the king's heart. It's like that in the hand of the Lord that he channels it and moves it. And that water is working for good. It's for a good purpose where it ends up for refreshment, for growth. And God is using it. Whatever happens to be the heart of the king, Genesis 50 verse 20, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Whatever happens to be happening in the heart of the king, God still controls it and he moves it and it accomplishes his purposes as it finally flows out. So what does all of this mean then? First, we have a government that works out of the people, by the people, for the people. Maybe of God, by God, for God. Your hope and your joy does not rise and fall on America or on America's president. It's on a God who is sovereign, who decrees what he decrees he will accomplish. He is unchanging yesterday, today, and forever. Your hope and your joy rest right there. Will presidents and kings and and dictators and, and policies cause difficulty and challenges in your life? Absolutely. But does your dreams and plans rest in the hands of those people? Absolutely not. He who gave you the Son, He will freely give you everything else in order to accomplish His good will in and through you. So if you feel that anxiety in your heart, you feel that tug, you feel that, woe is me, even in the face of challenges that you will face in, in whatever way, because of people who are elected, because of policies that are put in place, It can't overcome God's good hand, God's providential, kind hand for your life. Not only can it not overcome it, but God placed that king there. God placed that president there. He operates by permission of God's authority. And God takes the heart of that king. And as the streams of water, he moves it for his glory and for your good. It might not be the exact plan you had of what you think is your good, but ultimately it is for your good. Secondly, application. Respect and obey authority. Proverbs 13 tells you to respect those, obey those who have rule over you. They are there by the sovereign hand of God. They exist because of God. Let me just caution you, especially with social media and the way things work today, is be careful about going hard after mocking and disrespecting a president who you might disagree with. 
I'm not saying you can't disagree and you can't voice your opinions of disagreement. But there needs to be a level of respect and honor for the authority placed there by God. So draw that back in, not out of love and respect for moral opinions and policies, but for a divine God who placed them there in your life for your good, for his glory. And then obey the authority. You know, no matter how much of your paycheck they want to take and give right back to the government, no matter how annoying that is, be honest. Don't steal. Don't convince yourself it's okay because... Unless there's authority and there's policies and rules that put in that directly would cause you to disobey your God, then at that point he is your only king and your only sovereign. But the other issues of life that just are annoying... God has placed kings and rulers and presidents there. Have a measure of respect and honor and obey those who are in rule over you. I think the sovereignty of God really encourages that in our lives because ultimately it is out of honor and respect and reverence to God and to his authority. And then finally, we'll end with this. Let us be calm but let us work diligently. This is what the sovereignty of God should work in our souls, that we're not easily rattled, that we're not easily distressed, that we're not anxious about it. But we are resting firmly, our joy and our hope is firmly in God, but that shouldn't create laziness. There's still a call to work diligently. There's still decisions that need to be made. There's still responsibility upon you. Proverbs 16 says, Many are the plans of man, but it's the purposes of God that prevail. And it goes through there. Sometimes people will talk, kind of talk about, well, you know, don't make all your plans for your life. It's God's purposes that are going to prevail. That's not what that proverb is saying. It's saying that the plans of man, they belong to man. That's, that is a good and noble thing. The Proverbs leading up to it talk about the ants and, and the different insects that, that plan ahead, that store up, and they're not lazy, and they're thinking, and they're planning, and that's noble. So don't think that it's saying, you know, don't plan. It's not just que sera, sera. It's saying the, the plans are hard. They belong to man. That, that's a good thing. So there is energy, there is work to be done, there is diligence that must be done. But ultimately it's the purpose of God that's going to prevail. He will accomplish it in and through your plans. In Acts 17 it talks about that God does not need us. If you think that God's work and God's kingdom is totally dependent upon your energy and your creativity and your industry and your innovation, you're mistaken. But equally so, if you think that God doesn't care how you use your energy and your creativity and your innovation, you're also mistaken. God calls you to use that stuff, to diligently work with what he has given you for his glory to bring energy to your work for God, to be creative. Use your creativity for God. 
not as though the plans of your life and the plans of God depend on it, but that God will use those plans to accomplish his purpose. So don't hear this as a call to laziness and case or sirrah. It's a call to calmness of heart and reality, but it's also a call to diligently use those gifts that God has given you, to be someone who plans, to be someone who is informed, who discusses the society that we live in and, and how we are to act and maneuver as Christians. But not as if America is our, the last great hope of the planet. God is sovereign. He is the unchanging hope, joy, and firm foundation. Let's take a moment, just bow our heads. Ask the worship team if they'll come up. We're going to sing in a moment, Behold Our God. I hope it is a, a prayer, a rejoicing of our heart and our spirit before God. To behold Him in His beauty and His glory. But I would ask you, if when you hear about the sovereignty of God, if, if it's hard for you to swallow and you, you're kicking against it, as you read the Scriptures, just let the Scripture speak for itself. Don't soften it and reason it away. I'm not saying that there aren't tough questions and discussions that need to be had about the sovereignty of God and how it relates to other areas of life. But the Scripture speaks boldly, straightforwardly, unapologetically that God has no equal and he controls all things. Start there and there's going to be joy and confidence in your living. Will you stand with us as we close with a song, Behold Our God?